Hello, I'm Anne Arundel County Executive Stuart Pittman. My office is right around the corner from Conduit Street, and it's that time of year. Politicians are everywhere from all over the state of Maryland, and the only way I can keep up with all their shenanigans is the Conduit Street podcast. So let's find out what they're up to this week. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Doing great. Kevin, how are you? I am doing great. Hanging in there and back by popular demand, Natasha Mayhew. Natasha, how are you today? Good. How about you? I'm well, thanks. Michael was very worried that he was going to get thrown off the podcast <laughs> because you've been so great. <laughs> so we just had to bring you on. Everybody's right, on. Everybody's right. on. It's all good. Gang's all here. Okay, so today on the podcast, we will talk about the latest with the Kerwin Commission Education Funding Bill some big developments there. We'll get into some bills on prescription drug affordability, and then we will get into the latest with the Preakness and where it may reside, and we will talk about process for the end of the session and what we're looking forward to. Natasha and Michael, let's start with Kerwin. Big developments here. The Senate has passed a bill. It is now in the House, but the big news is the Senate passed a bill will provide $725 million in 21 and 22 with an additional $130 million and that would be contingent upon legislation passed this year or next year. We already know the General Assembly has passed a fiscal year 20 budget with $255 million in initial funding. So first reactions? So, I mean, you guys have been following this a lot closer than I have, but I, it, it seems a little weird with you saying that the, you know, the General Assembly passed a budget of $255 million, and then... While the current bills are sitting in committee, <laughs> right. only just moving now, right? It's almost two weeks later. Right? So yeah, why they pass a budget before they pass the bill? That is weird, right? So it seems a little backward because normally cart you move horse, the bill, right? <laughs> you know how much the fiscal note's going to be, and then you budget accordingly. Although this, this whole issue has sort of been backwards. I mean, the, you know, so yeah, I mean, we didn't even see like you know the report was sitting out there for a few weeks before we even saw the first draft of the Kerwin bill. I don't know. We're supposed to call it the blueprint bill. Right that now. seems to be the word now is the, it's the blueprint the for our future education blueprint. There's all this back and forth about all that. So, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, we've, you know, Britt Kerwin's done putting a lot of work. He, he deserves his name on this. I agree. I agree. <laughs> and he was here uh, in the Senate and in the House. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's been a very big part of this. But, but, Michael, it is weird that they passed the budget before they passed this bill. But where are we now? So the House has the bill now. The Senate sent over their bill. The House debated. They got a briefing, uh, Ways and Means and Appropriations, right. and so now the, the the bill is on the House floor. Yeah, I mean we're we're at we're at at risk of taxing the interest level of even our most dedicated followers <laughs> right. by talking about legislative process here. But this is a little tricky. That this is a Senate bill with a Senate number. It's moved out of the Senate. the The floor of the Senate. They, you know, they amended the bill, but it was just a couple of days ago. So, mm-hmm. you know, weeks ago we were telling everybody all oh, these crossover deadlines. They're very important procedural hurdles. Nah, not so much. Not when, for this bill. Yeah, when everybody's on board, everybody's on board. The train runs on time. So, right. so suddenly this bill's being hustled over to its committee in the House and so forth. Yesterday, we saw the the two House committees get a briefing on what the Senate had done. So the staff sort of walked through all these amendments and answered all the technical questions 
about what's in the bill. Then the two committees went off to basically have sort of a straw vote on what they intend to do once they got the bill yeah, they assigned. Didn't the they didn't bill. have the bill. Right. <laughs> I mean, back back in olden days, the the physical bill would be on one sheet of paper, and you had to have physical presence of the bill to take any action. So technically, they're saying, well, this is a pretend vote until we have the bill, and then we'll write it, write it down later. The whole scene was weird. But it was also bizarre. You and I were among, I don't know, there must have been 30 or 40 people in the room in the Ways and Means Committee as they were going through, must have been a dozen and a half different amendments. Right. Talking about more changes. Right. The right. Senate's already passed the bill 44 to 1. Right. And then the House Committee is saying, uh, you know, I got got this idea. People are running in from the back room with new amendments and stuff like that. It was weird because, <laughs> you know, I think the House – I think the goal here is not to go to a conference committee, right? They want the bill. They want the Senate to take whatever the House does and just agree. That way they don't have to go to a conference committee and slow this down. So it was interesting to see some of the amendments you could tell, okay, we can do that. It's like they're sending smoke signals to the Senate. They're saying, yeah, (laughs) we're good with that one. We're good with that one. Then there was an amendment that everyone sort of knew the Senate would not be good with. So actually the subcommittee passed the amendment and then the full committee rejected it because that would almost certainly mean a conference committee. So just the process was fascinating. And as you said earlier, how they're hustling around to get this done and they don't want any more hurdles that they have to jump over. I think they have cleared the final hurdles, and now we'll see maybe that the Senate just concede and, and take the House amendments. As yeah, well. you've made reference to conference committee, and they're trying to avoid that. I mean, that's a process, you know, Natasha, you, we've seen this happen to lots of our bills mm-hmm. all the time. The House and Senate disagree, and then they appoint a conference committee to work it out, right? Yeah, and it's typically, you know, three legislators from each side, and they hustle together (laughs) and work out the two differences between the bills come to an agreement. And then that's the bill. Um, that moves forward. Right. And and like, so that's your, with your normal bill, that's the process you'd be going through. And there's a lot of that happening. This last, yes. you know, this is, you know, we have you know, five days left in session and even over this weekend and into Monday morning, there'll be a lot of those little conference committees meeting in side rooms and in delegates offices and so forth. And it's like, let's hash through our four issues and the Senate wins on two and the house wins on two and everybody signs off here. Yeah. I think they just decided let's not leave this important bill to that kind of minutia. Right. right? Because you don't want your bill, um, one, to die in conference right. committee. If they, right. They right. Which happens. A lot of, it does. It happens yeah, all the time to bills time. that everybody wants to see passed. Yeah. And then suddenly it's like, what happened? Oh, it died in conference? Really? Right. Yeah. Oh, it's midnight. Right. Tiny died and the bill is still in conference right. committee. Right. Yeah. 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 So you really try hard to avoid the bill going to conference yeah. committee. So there, there was, there's a reason to pull strings to keep it out of that process mm-hmm. and keep it on track. So you know, as as we're recording – uh, you know, the House has already had their first round discussion about this bill. It sounds like they'll pass it on the floor of the House. The votes will be there. We expect the Senate is going to just sign off and accept it mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. than go through the process of rejecting the House amendments. So they go back and forth with messages and appoint their conference. Skip all that. Just the, signs, the, the Senate says, fine, we'll take it. Right. right. With five days. Time is not on yeah, your yeah, side. Yeah, yeah. A big bill like process. this. You don't, yeah, yeah, you don't want to leave any, any gaps. You got to get it done. You got to get it done. So, I mean, we could go through all the numbers and the minutiae of this bill, Michael, but I think there is one piece of this which I know – you and I and Natasha have been talking about as, you know, a game changer on this whole issue. 
And this is really, it's in the back of the bill. Um, I think most people haven't even gotten to it yet because you have to read this whole bill. It's like almost 50 pages long. But let's talk about this provision, Michael, and why it's so important. Well, everybody's hung up on the stuff that that you led with, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is basically two years of funding. And if you're you're really invested in special education services or the schools that have high concentrations of poverty or this incentive for teacher pay, those are the headline grabbers. And that was the stuff that was all in the original bill and whether it's going to be fully funded or scaled back. I mean, those are the the easy to follow debates, but buried on page 44 of this long bill is this little one sentence uncodified section that I feel is maybe the biggest piece. If we've, we've been working with the assumption, this is the small bill and the big Kerwin bill comes next year when they rewrite school funding formulas, they announce how rapidly we're going to get to all these goals and objectives. We're going to change the nature of the way we fund all these different things. And on the podcast, we've been talking about this probably ad nauseum about how this 10 year phase in is kind of phony because almost all the money's in the first three or four years. Right. And that's what we've been harping on that. Right. right. We're like, like how, do you, how do you find $2 million of new state money in three years? Right. And then, you know, we go through our back of the envelope while well, you raise all these taxes and double all these fees and you get all the corporates and you do a penny on the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, all that kind of stuff, you know, this big laundry list of revenue sources, which is, you know, intimidating politically right, right, right. all right so so throw all that out now maybe because right? here here's this section at, at the back of the of the placeholder bill that says it's the intent of the general assembly that the commission include in its final report an implementation schedule that phases in the final recommendations as evenly as practicable over the phase-in period as evenly as practicable so that, over that the phase sounds period. like oh if it's going to be a four billion dollar price tag and we got 10 years that. that's not that's not like a billion and another billion and then a little trickle after that. It's going to be like 400 a year. Sure. Mm. So affording 400 a year for the next decade is a, an enormously different task than trying to find 3 billion by the end of this term. All right. Talk about that a little bit and what it means. Like, what does this mean now? So we had thought we're going to have to raise all these taxes and the state, you know, they're going to be scrambling to figure out how to do this. But if we're really going to make this a true 10-year phase-in, what does that mean for budgets moving forward over the next 10 years? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back when we first saw probably like the first draft of the Kerwin report back in October, November, you know, probably November mm-hmm. of 18. And we did a podcast going through and saying, look at some of these numbers. This is really, this is staggering. And at one point it was $4.4 billion. Things have evolved in one way or another. But still, you know, $4 billion bucks per year ramping up pretty quickly seemed like an awfully big thing. And I think the subtext of our conversation there was there's going to be a really tough reckoning for a lot of legislators who say, yeah, I'm in for better schools. I want to do right by the schools. I'm for education. I got my Apple ballot, right? So there's a lot of people who feel that way, but they have not yet thought through how do you find two billion dollars? Right, but I also I don't right. want to raise taxes. <laughs> right, I never yeah. said that. Right, right. Well, I mean, even even this session, I mean, we've seen all sorts of leadership Democrats talking about how proud they are that this year's budget is a wonderful budget, and no one's raising taxes and fees and so forth. So, I mean, okay, that, that's fine. Right, but you got to find right. the money. Yeah, you got well, somewhere. right, Somehow. right. So, but I I feel like so this is maybe it's an obvious realignment. But this is making me go back and eat a lot of the words that I was that I was loading up back then because 
I thought if push came to shove and the program was really let's find $2 billion and get there in three years, I thought people would choke on it. I think this is something they won't choke on. Right. And I think this has just changed the nature of this debate. So if we were guessing whether the whole Kerwin plan can pass and being somewhat skeptical because it might not be affordable, this is going to be the subtle way to bite the big, you know, to make, to make the big move. And I, I, I think it's a big deal. So how do you do this? If this ends up being the price tag is like four or $500,000 a year. For you know a bunch of phasing, million, a fa- million. yeah, it was, yeah, excuse me, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, five hundred. No, that's nothing. Right? That's, you know. Yeah, but yeah, four or five hundred million dollars a year for each of a number of phase-in years, and you you probably are going to slough some of those costs onto the counties. So you have the states, and they're holding the, holding the bag for two hundred, two fifty, something like that. Back up and do the math. The, the the state's general fund revenues cover a budget that's that's not quite twenty billion dollars. Right. So on a twenty billion dollar budget, if the economy is doing okay, you probably get something like three percent revenue growth. That's like five hundred, six hundred million dollars of new money to work with each year. So there are some things that cost a little bit more each year. You'll have the number of Medicaid patients and other things like that that just sort of churn along. Right. But basically what you can just say is, all right, 200 off the top. Every year, 200, 250 off the top goes to education. And then every other priority fights for what's left. And we've, you know, we've talked a lot about what's looming in the background here is the economy, right? And a lot of folks think that there is some sort of Many recession or recession looming on the horizon. So all of this is assuming, you know, we have six hundred million to spend. Assuming the economy is is chugging along. But so yeah, I mean, so and and who knows what happens mm-hmm. if you end up passing a program that that that, that makes a big, bunch of big promises and commitments, and then the economy tanks. You know, you do budget reconciliation things. Say, well, this year we can't do our increment or whatever. That that stuff can happen. But even less dramatic than that. I mean, take a look. Take a look this year. They knew they knew they wanted to do a, an installment toward Kerwin. I mean, Natasha, you were out trying to work one of our bills. One of Mako's priorities was a very well-received idea saying we ought to get back on track with the way we fund local health departments. Right. And they were cut during the last recession. So Mm -hmm. it was this simple bill (laughs) to restore them to what they should be, um, what their core funding formula should be now. And it had a almost like a $27 million fiscal note and it's a core funding formula. So it continues, but certainly, you know, as we're walking around talking about this bill and um, quite honestly, and a number of others that I was working on, you immediately got the impression that we have to be a little bit cautious here on what we can um, find. And so fiscal notes got a real close look at this session. And if you had bills with high fiscal notes, um, some of them are still sitting in drawers or they set up grant programs that don't have funding to them because you can't promise that you'll be able to cover those costs in out years. And some legislators were very blunt, like, listen, we have to do Kerwin. So, you know, we're doing Kerwin. So all these bills with fiscal notes, you got to strip them down, make them studies, or, you know, it's Mm -hmm. the intent that we do this or that, but no fiscal notes. And you got to think, you know, all the advocates that are out there working on non-education issues moving forward, like health department funding, extremely, extremely important. But 
if we're going to be stuck now, what we're just going to do Kerwin because that's what we have to do. We have to take that money off the top. That's a big deal. Because every right. year right. after this, right. it turns into, well, right. we still need to find right. the police departments, the health departments, mm-hmm. all these other things. Oh, and by the way, right. we still have these big bills for this one program. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I, so I think those are the missing stakeholders in this debate. If this sentence, I mean – it's going to sound like I'm overreacting, but I don't think I am. I think if this is the game plan, then this is making basically a decade-long commitment that it's going to be education first, and everybody else picks up the scraps after education is fully satisfied. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to be aggressive, and 250 more each year for the next decade or something like that is something that... You can vote for next year, and I'm sure a lot of people will, and they'll be happy about it. And then we're going to get to the year 2023, even without a recession. And lo and behold, they're going to say, you know what? Boy, these, these teacher pension costs have been, have been driven up, and we need to, we need to rearrange how much the counties have to pick up for that. Sounds or, familiar. Yeah, that yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, here we are sitting here, you know, we're on a starvation diet with our highway user revenues is not far-fetched to say that is a direct consequence of the the Thornton formula, the, the state going for a decade saying to fund our Thornton obligations, we have to fund education first and other things will take a back seat. Another decade of that, I mean, if you're a state employee or if you're, mm-hmm. if you're one of the wardens at the state prisons saying I've got all these vacancies and I can't fill with enough correctional officers right. to maintain which and manage my, my building, which is exactly what they're saying. Issue, right. yeah. And I mean, this is the kind of thing that where you need $40 million to solve that problem. There's not going to be $40 million to solve anything if this is the way that we're building budgets for the next, next decade. And with this sentence, I think that's what's happening. Okay, so devil's advocate, though. <laughs> I, you hear a lot of legislators saying, yeah, but we're going to pass cannabis. We're going to legalize cannabis. We're going to get tax money from that. We'll do sports betting. There are these odds and ends that we can raise revenue. We don't have to raise taxes. I mean, so devil's advocate yep. there. I mean, we know that'll bring in some revenue, but I I agree that I don't think it's going to be enough to offset this clause and saying right. this is how we're going to do it. No one's really talking about this either. Like this is going to pass, yeah. right? There's no discussion right. on the floor about Man. well, wait a minute, what's this on page on ever, right? So I don't I don't know. I mean, so devil's advocate though, do you think that could potentially offset that here, or is it too I, much money? I I, th- I think that it'll it'll lie somewhere in the middle. Right. So this year's bill is going to sail easily, mm-hmm. and and if there are votes against it, there will be relatively few and far between. Um, I think what's more interesting to me is that this is the pre fine tuning of next year's bill that could have had trouble. The big bill. If if the big bill next year was going to look like we thought it was, and it was going to be three year ramp up to $3 billion. That was going to be big tax increases. And a bunch of Democrats who wanted to vote for it would say, I can't do that. I I just don't think I can do that. And then the bill's in trouble. This is a way of saying, we're going to be able to pass this bill and it will be the same debate. And there will be some people saying the sky's fallen on the floor of the house and Senate this time next year when the big Thornton bill sitting out there and it's this nice, smooth 10 year phase in, but I'm predicting it now. This sentence is going to make them show up with a report next year, and that's going to be affordable to the majority of the legislature. That bill's going to pass. Even if it's over a governor's veto, they'll be able to do it. And this is this is the real blueprint. 
Right, right. So, so, so just real quick, I know we spent a lot of time on this, but process-wise, so you said this clause says this, that is the intent of the General Assembly. So the Kerwin Commission will meet, they'll get back together. They don't have to do this. There'll be some, sure, there'll, yeah. there'll probably be some infighting amongst commissioners about whether or not this is the right way to go. Right. But this oh, there'll a, be some true true believers on the Kerwin Commission. Sure. You, you've been watching all yes, those meetings. Yes. <laughs> so we know we know there are there are people who will be furious right. that this, this is the right. word coming from the legislature, but nothing becomes law until it's in a bill and passed by the legislature. So the commission can advance whatever it wants, but this is pretty strong language. Pretty telling. Give us give us a smooth phase in. That's what we can pass. Okay, so keep that in mind and remember that Michael called this. So when we're back here <laughs> next year, um, you're, you're the first one to call it. So very important stuff. We do think this bill will pass the full General Assembly by the end of the week. We're sitting here on Thursday. Yep. Uh, should be on third reader in the House tomorrow. So should be wrapped up. And uh, we'll let you know what happens. But obviously, the big bill is coming next year, and this certainly has a big, big yep. impact. Yep. All right. We're going to go ahead and take a break there. When we come back, we'll get into a few bills on prescription drug affordability. We'll talk about some news with Pimlico. And then we'll get into just process-wise what happens here at the end of session, all that and more after the break. Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson and Natasha Mayhew. Natasha, let's get into a couple bills on prescription drug costs. This first bill, this is establishing an affordability board. I know you've been watching this very closely. It's late in session. There, there are some issues that are still getting headlines, and this is one of them. And essentially, this bill would establish a prescription drug affordability board. Um, and but there are different versions of the bill, right? I mean, tell right. us what's going on here. Um, and so, Mako, we supported this bill. Um, as employers, county spends a lot of money mm-hmm. on um, the providing uh, ins- health insurance to their employees, and prescription drugs can be a significant amount of those costs. Um, I think at the hearings, uh, you know, we heard that in Hartford County, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars for a handful of employees for their prescription of drug costs. Um, and so the House and Senate have taken different approaches on this. Um, the House has um, scaled the bill down a bit, and the Prescription Drug Affordability Board can still review the cost of these um, really high prescription drugs. Um, and However, it's limited to uh, state and local um, employees and plans. Okay, so this wouldn't be for everybody. Then. No, the house. so this would be okay. Yeah, your your state and local employees, units of government um, includes like hospitals, correctional facilities, hmm. uh, as opposed to doing the world right, right, right. of prescription drugs in right. the state. Because because Lumen in the background, we we talked about this uh, at a previous podcast. Lumen in the background of this whole issue is one of our favorite recurring themes of interstate commerce, right? right? right. So, so the, there there are limits to what a state government can do on matters that are really about the economy writ large, and Congress sort of owns most of that turf. 
So the state, you know, the state in this issue actually has has tried one thing and been told by the federal courts, no, this was an overreach. You still have people panicked about you know, the price they see when they're at the window at the pharmacy, or the people who are trying to do a contract for for you know benefits for their employees, saying good good heavens up eleven percent again this year. I mean that's that's what's going on in here. So trying to address that in a way that's going to pass muster is part of the challenge. Right. right. And so in the House, they limited the scope a bit, and the board can set upper payment limits. And the idea there to um, try to stay away from these interstate commerce clause issues is that you're not limiting what the um, uh, uh, farm pharmaceutical industry um, charges mm-hmm. for their mm-hmm. drugs. Because that would be a problem. It's limiting what the state may pay for that. <laughs> so that's one way of yeah. doing Trying upper payment limits. That. But then, then that brings to the table, though, the employees who, whether whether this is whether this is the real outcome of the House version of the bill or not, we started seeing public employee groups say, "Wait, does that mean that if I have an important medicine and my county or the state has this payment cap, we're only going to pay seventy dollars?" And the company says, "Well, we just won't deliver that medicine to you in Maryland, so or you good luck pocket, without it." Right, right. Right. Well, the board does have um, a couple of ways that they can. Um, you know, open it up so that if there is drug shortages, if it's hard to get the drugs, you wouldn't be completely denied your ability to right. receive this drug um, if they're setting upper payment li- limits. Um, the Senate took a bit of a different approach. Right. So, where, I mean, so this gets this gets thorny yes. politically. Right. So right. so this is a true like you know try and find some balance to address the problem. You don't want to leave the employees feeling like they're out in the cold. You don't want to end up with a bill that's going to get thrown out in court again. You'd like to do something to protect the, you know, protect the the users of the medicines. It's a really fine right, line, right. right? Yeah, and it's a it's not an insignificant amount of people. Even when you limit it to state and local employees, right. I mean, if you include their families, it's um, close to um, three hundred thousand people. Oh yeah, fall under absolutely, that. absolutely. Um, yeah, but you do have to be very careful, and we heard that a lot in the Senate hearing. Um, was how can we do this and 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 still um, get it through and not be in violation of um, commerce clause? Right. And so, what the Senate did with the bill is the board does not set upper payment limits. Rather, after they review these um, uh, medications, they can. Um, Essentially, uh, recommend a strategy forward for reducing the costs in the state. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly a task force, but it's empowering this new state level body to sort of be the decision makers and navigate the next steps on this. Right. And right. they're still going to collect a lot of information yeah. and it has annual reports and both bills still include that. And the idea on the Senate side would be, I don't know, maybe after a couple of reports on this and pathways forward, maybe you end up somewhere where eventually you have upper payment limits or perhaps other ways of reducing the cost, but it's not empowering them at this stage so they, to do the upper So they limits. need to get the data. And then you think maybe after they get a few reports, they can say, look, this is a big problem. We need to do something. So we need to put some more teeth into this without violating the Commerce Clause still. But I mean, the House and Senate versions are now very different. So this one is one where we are most likely going to see a conference committee, right? Right, right. In a lot of ways, they are the same, but it's a 
big difference yeah. <laughs> yeah. the one way they are different so you i mean <laughs> but usually and i i'm interested in your forecast here but usually if you have two sides like this i mean the house was willing to say let's have some payment limits mm-hmm. let's actually change the nature of how people get their prescriptions at least one set of people and so forth but i mean the house was willing to do part of the original vision of the bill the senate basically wasn't mm-hmm. right let's let's have a panel that moves forward on this and like let's let's get some people around the table to try and sort things out is really different from let's pilot this with with this batch of people and this scheme and these limits and stuff i mean usually the the more skeptical chamber i mean it's it's pretty tough for the house to yeah. convince the senate well you know you didn't really want to do a real bill let's go halfway and do half of the house bill I mean, in this case, this might be another circumstance where the floor of the Senate becomes the arbiter of how aggressive the social policy can be in Maryland. You think you think ultimately the Senate like probably gets they've defined how much we can do here? Uh, I think so. I mean, the, the House bill's over there now. The Senate bill's moving. And I, I do think that's what yeah. th- I mean, it'd, be, it'd be a real surprise if they if they strip out the payment limits concept. In the in you know in, this is a House bill. It's in the Senate. If they strip that out and send it back without that stuff, to try and negotiate it back in in a conference report, just seems like that would be tough to sell on the floor of the Senate. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Natasha, you think the Senate was it was more concerned about this holding up in court? Maybe. I mean, no, I think they were both concerned, and and very honestly, both both the House and the Senate had work groups working on this really hard for mm-hmm. months and months. Um, it's it's a it's not an easy issue to tackle. Um, certainly, um, advocates in support of these bills note that it's it's uncharted territory a bit in the United States. But the idea of limiting prescription drug costs is um, certainly something that's done in a lot of countries around the world. Right. So it's not a completely out of the world idea, um, but it's been hard in in the states to get this sort of thing done, and um, what Maryland was going to do was going to be first of its kind. And we've talked about this before, right? This is another case where Congress has not acted, and the states are trying to pick up the slack and address yeah. this issue themselves. And, and and Maryland already is sort of a trailblazer in healthcare. I mean, the mm-hmm. way we do all payer with our hospitals mm-hmm. is one of a kind. I mean, and other states look at Maryland and say that's a fascinating model. You know, other people are kicking the tires on the same system that we use. So it's not inconceivable that we could be the state to break the mold here and do something first. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if this this year's bill is going to be it, but obviously a lot of people care, including a lot of county leaders hearing this back home. Right, right. It's a big issue for for members. Definitely. Okay, so let's jump into another prescription drug bill. This is a bill that the House and the Senate have compromised on, and this is an issue we're talking about here addresses prescription drug benefits for state government retirees. So this is all about retirees and the cost of drugs. We know that's a big deal too. But Natasha, let's talk a little bit about this. Um, What is this bill doing and what has the General Assembly done to try and address this issue for state retirees and prescription drug costs? Yeah. So generally speaking, um, this bill uh, addresses some um, loopholes and problems that arose after some changes were made um, on the federal level with Medicare um, um, Part D. And then um, accordingly, the the state made some changes as well, and it created a loophole for some of these um, high retiree 
prescription drugs cost. And so they had been looking at ways that you can um, close those loopholes and reduce the cost for the retirees. Um, It was uh, truly good floor listening um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as uh, Senator Griffith um, walked through this bill. Without and, any notes, right? And, apparently. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> doing a really good job. <laughs> really good job because it, it does get a bit complicated and it has to do with the various um, plans that you can join and when you are retiring at what point. Um, and so uh, it certainly creates three in three ways helps the um, retirees with their prescription drug costs. But this, I mean, this part of Medicare, which really hasn't been around for all that long, the idea, you know, the, uh, the part D has only been a Medicare facet in the last couple decades. And, for a long time, we've heard about the donut hole problem right. that you have benefits up to a certain point, and then there's sort of this weird gap. Mm-hmm. And depending on the kinds of medicines that you particularly take or need, or that sort of thing, you end up with people with these out of pocket costs that are just breathtaking. Right. And unless you can solve the problem, you end up with either just a nightmare for the employees or the retirees. Or as the employer, I mean, there were versions of, of you know, if this went badly mm-hmm. for the state, they could end up with a liability f- to the state government that was in the you know billions with a B, like big yeah. numbers yes. of if we if we get this wrong, we're going to end up absor- absorbing an enormous number here. And I mean, no one wants to no one wants to send off the people who have worked for and contributed to the government for that long and say, well, sorry, uh, you're 63 years old now. You got your full pension, but now you're out of pocket for eleven thousand dollars for your medication. Mm -hmm. No one really wants that. No. Um, But at the same time, the state isn't really looking to take on a 10 billion dollar unfunded liability. Right. So threading this needle was a really, really big deal. So, so this bill does this bill now set caps, right, Natasha, on what your out of pocket expenses would be? Right, right. So, um, in certain cases, there are limits up to fifteen hundred dollars for an individual, um, two thousand for a family. Um, if you um, have catastrophic prescription drug assistance and you're under that program, um, there are also uh, certain caps there. Um, and similarly, if you have a life-sustaining prescription drug, um, there's a way for you to continue to receive that drug um, where um, the state will help pay for that. So really, the, the idea here is to try and provide certainty to these retirees when it comes to their drug costs and to, to close that, that donut hole and really thread the needle here. And it's obviously a really tough job to try and do, but it seems like right. they've They've at least got a plan, and they've agreed to it, and hopefully this works out. Yeah, they avoid a conference committee. Yep. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> another one. Hat, hats off. It sounds like it sounds like this was you know this was a lot of late nights trying to labor through this and figure out how to be fair to everybody and a little give, a little take. But mm-hmm. that's 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 a, that's a lot of work went into it. Very much so. So we've talked about some prescription drug bills here. Those are getting a lot of headlines. Another issue that we have heard about throughout this session, it's been a headline grabber, is the Preakness and where the Preakness should be run. This is a a triple crown race. Obviously, it's a big deal for Maryland. And there's been a lot of debate about where the Preakness should be and Pimlico, obviously, in Baltimore City, whether or not it should move to Laurel, because the owner of Pimlico also owns Laurel. And they would, you know, I think they've admitted they'd like to move it there. They'd like to put some money into that track. But this has been a major debate about whether or not they should invest in Pimlico or if you're going to let these folks invest in Laurel, 
and then essentially you move the Preakness out of the city. So a lot of big news here as well. What, what are we hearing now? Well, it, it sounds like as a legislative issue for this session, nothing's happening. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, we know there's a proposal sitting out there for a massive redevelopment of the Pimlico facility and and the sort of area around it in Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. And that's it's a big price tag. But, yeah, y- y- the nature of that project is massively important to that region of the city. So you see that as beyond necessarily just the simple scope of here's what the new building's going to look like and here's what the flashing lights are. Um, so that's that's a whole thing. But the, the regional dynamic is tricky. I mean, it's, it's one thing, like, we'd rather have the company come here than go to Alabama. Right, right. But the idea of, you know, Baltimore City fighting against the Anne Arundel County, Prince George's County, that little area around Laurel, which is sort of three counties, all converged there. I mean, that's a that's a different debate um, intrastate, and it. I mean, it touches on. It's got something for everybody. Yes, it right. Does. <laughs> right? It does. So, I mean, there's there there is a regional component about old Baltimore versus the new metro area in the center of the state, where there's more mm-hmm. growth and different kind of infrastructure. Um, There is no doubt there's a racial element here. So you had the Black Caucus in the legislature very much engaged about the neighborhood that's at stake in and around, you know, in and around uh, Pimlico and Baltimore. And what would happen to that neighborhood if you moved this race out of the city? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so all those, all those are moving parts, not going to get resolved now, but the status of the Pimlico facility is 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 such that you don't have forever to just dribble the ball out here. So you you got to do something, and it's it's probably either you double down on Pimlico or you 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 do something else. But um, neither of those is an easy lift. I don't think. So there were proposals to send money to the Laurel Track, and and Pimlico would have been left out. That's off the table. This idea to provide four hundred million dollars to you know, uh, Pimlico and the surrounding neighborhood, that's off the table for now. But these issues aren't going away. And as you said, they're very, very complicated. And we talked earlier about, you know, the Kerwin phase in. And if you're going to try to get all of this money to redevelop Pimlico, that is now going to be a right. lot more difficult, right? It's, it's, it's one, of those, another, yeah. one of those things. And th- I mean, this also, like the nature of horse racing is is looming in the background here that Maryland has this historical fondness for horse racing. There's still a lot of breeders and trainers and so forth who are, who, who are in and around Maryland. It's its own industry. And even though, I mean, there, there's no talk that the Pimlico facility is going to pay for itself. Right. So this is a matter of you need to give subsidies in order to put these things up. And, you know, most states are marrying casinos with their racetracks and other things like that as a, as a way to make the facilities workable. Um, you know, we, we've had our own fits and starts with what to do on, on that front, but that's kind of looming in the background here too. This isn't the same thing as, an NFL team who says, well, we want a new spot. Well, they're moneymakers and the, the enterprise of horse racing right now and maybe forever right. is not really a net positive enterprise. So we are holding on to our past. We're subsidizing a lot of, we subsidize purses. We subsidize breeders as part of the, a heritage and culture in Maryland. And that's a priority here, but that's also in this conversation too, without exactly being right on the nose. 
Bottom line, though, Preakness is not leaving the state. No. So that's no. probably what most people <laughs> most people care about, right? It's All been right. a while since I've made it to the Preakness, but uh, yeah, a little while. Maybe maybe this year you got to get down. You got to get down. All right. So that's the deal with the with the Preakness and with Pimlico. We think everything's going to stay status quo at least for now, and they'll address this again next year. But let's talk a little bit about the final, the waning days of session. We've gotten into a little bit about you know conference committees and people running around. It's it's always interesting. It's right? all done Monday night. It's all done Monday night. <laughs> Mid- midnight, they drop the confetti one way or the other. That's and it. It's That's over. It. So so what is what's going on now? What are we looking forward to? You know, where everybody's running around, but lots of bills working. You know, late stages, and we said conference committees. So what is the process now from here on Thursday afternoon until Monday at midnight? You're just always tracking what's going to pop up. When are they on the floor? When are subcommittees meeting? When are the committees right. meeting? When are voting sessions happening? Um, because this is the time where you're, you have to do a lot of running around because you never know when things are going to be on the move. And then you have short windows to catch people. Um, if there are any changes to the bill, I mean, we get dragged in all the time on this when they vote and then all of a sudden, you know, someone pulls you over and it's just like, oh, you got to get into this. Right. They, counties are interested oh, in this yeah, issue, right? Oh, yeah, we get right? that all I mean, the time, these right? amendments yeah. bring you in. Yeah, so right. even if we don't have, like, a ton of issues lingering out there, you can just be walking down the street and somebody's going to say, hey, 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 hey Mako <laughs> needs – yeah, Mako should get in on this. We're we're doing health insurance over here. You guys you guys give health insurance to your employees, too? You probably you probably don't like this bill either. You want to get in there. Right. I mean, that's, it, it, it's, it's kind of a late session tradition that whatever you've got left just sort of expands to occupy whatever time you have remaining. So mm-hmm. that's, but I mean, just like Natasha said, the the process gets chaotic. There's lots of things that are that are in some weird intermediate stage of getting done, and then suddenly, you know, somebody's got a little problem with their senator, and then the Senate mm-hmm. bill gets held up in the House, and then the Senate committee realizes that bill's been held up in the House. So now five House bills have been special ordered and delayed on the floor of the Senate, yes. and we got yeah. So and so suddenly it's like, all right, well. Well, uh, yeah, my back needs scratched right. over here too. I mean, this this kind of stuff happens. It's it's you can just bank that it's going to be like that toward the end of the set. It was it, it was funny. We were all listening to the the Senate floor, I think, earlier, mm-hmm. and the Senate president was all but saying the last day of the session is going to be no big deal. Right? Yeah, and there's not yeah. that much left. We're going to be on the floor for a couple hours, then we'll just drift for a while, and it's not going to be that that much stuff going. And, and like, objectively he's exactly right as he is inclined to be um he's measuring the number of things that are sitting out there but we don't have you know last minute giant important things that really have to pass and that sort of stuff but it'll there's always little odds and ends mm-hmm. and what i always think is hilarious is on the last day your ability to cause chaos just magnifies even if even if you're just senator, right? one Not senator just one, right. one senator even if you don't have any other votes but if you've got a bill you don't like, you stand up and you say, you know, Mr. President, I have all these amendments and I'm ready to offer each and every one of them. And I want to describe them to you in detail. And what you're telling the other senators on the floor is, oh, you care about a bill getting passed mm-hmm. and yours is on the list, but it's after mine. 
oh, what you probably want to do is just delay this bill. I hate this bill. Right, right. You don't care about my bill, but now you're with me. But you better care. Yeah. <laughs> so let's delay that bill so my bill can come up. And you know, at noon on Monday, that seems like a big thing. And then at 6 o'clock at night on Monday. And then at 9 o'clock oh, at night on yeah. Monday. Then suddenly it's like, all right, we, amendment. No, no, no. Forget it. Get rid of it. Done, so, done. so what's the process there? So it's the last day because you can ask for an hour, right, each time. And you can keep standing up and saying, I have an amendment, but let's let it lie over for an hour right? each time. And then all the way to midnight. So there's you know a special process, especially in the Senate, uh, but it's 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 just a matter of you can signal this is going to get complicated. There's going to be lots yeah. of questions and difficulties. So we'll either go through all that complication or we'll just skip this bill. Right. And uh, you know, turns out there's an awful lot of bills who end up making it through 89 and a half days of the legislature and they die yeah. because it's so right. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. We've been oh, there. Yeah. Right? We've had we've had bills in the, the stack. There's a, oh yeah, oh yeah. So everybody does. Too. Yeah. yeah, and it's like you know that right on the table in front of the president. Like there's your bill. They just couldn't get to it before midnight. It was the next one up, <laughs> right. and then it's dead. Right. And it's just can be really frustrating. Yeah. So a lot to look forward to over the last few days, I guess. Even though most of the major county issues are settled, right? Pretty, pretty yeah. much. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So just getting dragged into stuff and watching the floor. Uh, it, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So. Not a lot hanging out for counties, but obviously there are major issues that people are still running around town trying to get done. Okay, so let's leave it there. Anything else that either one of you are looking forward to besides signy die, Michael? Then you get to go down to Guam. We, you know, right we, won't, <laughs> we won't hear from you for a while, plan, right? but so that's exciting. But anything else lingering out there that that you two are looking forward to specifically? Or just resting after signing die. Honestly, this this yeah. night this ninety day session, the mentality gets to be when you get to days eighty five and eighty six and so forth. It's just like, all right, we can just trudge through a few more days. We'll make it. We'll yeah, make it. Yeah. So, right, right. Go to the beach somewhere after. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Obviously, we'll be back after signing die. Maybe on uh, Wednesday or Thursday to just do a recap of what happened. But this is our last podcast of the twenty nineteen General Assembly session. So. We'll be back, but uh, yeah, but we hope you all have a great weekend and we will talk to you next week. As always, if you do enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, send it around to your friends. It really helps us get our message out. But for Michael and Natasha, Kevin signing off. We'll talk to you soon.